0: Oh, don't let us. don't let them us. Oh, don't let them stab us.
1: Oh, don't let them us. Oh,
2: no more I'm Doug Storm. This is Interchange. Today's show is Facing Down the Past. The White South Shakes Its Whip. This is Original Fabus Fables by Charles Mingus. Today, we'll excerpt a 1999 interchange episode in which host Shanna Ritter interviews Elizabeth Eckford, one of the Little Rock Nine, and Hazel Brian Massery, the white student made infamous in photographs which capture her hatefully screaming at Eckford. The two are joined by the man who took that photo, Will Counts. Captured in Count's photo, which is one of the Associated Press's 100 top news photos of the century, A frightened Eckford is followed by a crowd of segregationists. Masary is right behind her, face twisted in anger. Eckford and Masary were in Bloomington on October 25, 1999, as part of an effort to educate young people about the pain of racial strife and the promise of racial healing. 2017 was the 60th anniversary of that moment. It's certainly debatable if the country has changed at all when white supremacists continue marching in our streets And we are witnesses to the hate-filled among us driving into peaceful public demonstrations, attempting and succeeding to kill those gathered there. Our opening song by Charles Mingus was a direct response to this landmark crisis of civil rights. The nine students selected to integrate Little Rock Central High School were initially prevented from entering the racially segregated school by Orville Falbus, then Governor of Arkansas. You heard Mingus and drummer Danny Richmond sing, Oh Lord, don't let him shoot us. Oh Lord, don't let him stab us. Oh Lord, don't let him tar and feather us. Oh Lord, no more swastikas. Oh Lord, no more Ku Klux Klan. Mingus will accompany us throughout. We'll select from his 1963 album, The Black Saint and the Sinner Lady, which has been called one of the greatest achievements in orchestration by any composer in jazz history. This album states that all mankind must unite in revolution against any society that restricts freedom and human rights. We take part of the program's title from the 1958 poem Little Rock by Cuban poet Nicolas Guillén, which reads in part, The blues weep their musical tears in the fine morning. The white south shakes its whip and lashes out. Flanked by pedagogical rifles, the black children walk to their school of terror. In that Faubus world, under that adamant Faubus sky, now think what it'd be like if all the world were south. In our first segment, we'll hear about segregation as a way of life, a cultural norm in the south, reinforced in the pulpit, on television, and in even seemingly insignificant ways.
3: Um, I wanted to start out by getting a picture of what it was like growing up in Arkansas in the late 40s and the early 50s. Hazel, could you talk a little bit about your life as a as a young girl and then as a teenager in Little Rock, Arkansas? Well, it,
0: it was certainly a, a different world then that I grew up in, and we talk mostly, have spoke to <clears throat> students, and I st- tell them that segregation is just a word to them, but Elizabeth and I live that, and that uh, <clears throat> what they take for granted today, that I give them examples that we grew up with uh, drinking fountains that were had signs on them uh, colored in white, and restrooms that had signs colored in white that were segregated, and... The lunch counters. Now, I originally was born in a smaller town uh, with a population of 300. Uh, We didn't have drinking fountains and restrooms, but when I went to Little Rock or Pine Bluff, which were uh, larger cities nearby, that I experienced this. And um, the lunch counters, the restaurants were segregated. Uh, Of course, our schools were segregated, and we grew up with uh, not questioning that this was the way it was, and had always been, and that the way it would always be. That we never thought that, never questioned it, or wondered, even wondered about why it was that way. And um, public transportation was also segregated. The black people went to the back of the bus, and that was the only transportation that I knew of. I didn't use a plane or a, a train at those time. But um, entertainment, we we take for granted. Uh, just going to movies, but uh, black people had to go to the balcony and um, parks and swimming pools. Uh, ha-
4: Hazel, tell them about Chuck Berry and
0: Bo Diddley. No, who's getting to that wheel? Okay, there's a, a Robinson Auditorium, and in the fifties, uh, black entertainers would were rock and roll was here, you know, to stay, uh-huh. and uh, black entertainers would come to Little Rock to perform at Robinson Auditorium. And it was segregated, and they would do two performances, one for the whites, and then they would go in the basement and have a second performance for the black. And it was always a joke that uh, <clears throat> we didn't know it, but they gave a much better performance for their, the blacks than they did for the whites. So that was sort of a, a, funny about that. And um, this was um, not in the 40s, but in the, it was up, in I suppose, in 54 before my mm-hmm. family had a television set. And everybody takes for granted uh being able to see TV now, and they don't realize how much they're influenced by, by television. Right. And that uh, when they first had programming, you didn't ever see a black person on TV. And Elizabeth and I, as we got to know one another, she said that when they first got a TV in the 50s, I believe, that she, um, her father... Uh, when there was a black person on TV, she, he would call the children to come, come and look, that there was a black person on TV. So uh, it was a very different world. And, of course, the political world, blacks had no representation there. And um, religion, uh, uh, Vivian tells me, Will's wife, about the black people that are in their church. And I see them, although I'm not a religious person, uh, I hear that the, the the churches are now uh more integrated. And that was, during this time, the churches played a very large part in supporting segregation. Mm -hmm. Um, You will see in some of Will's pictures, uh, placards that say uh, race uh, mixing is anti-Christ. Race mixing was communism. And so the churches had a, a big part in this. There was even an organization called the uh, Mother's League of Central High School, and mm-hmm. it was, origin was in the Broadmoor Baptist Church, and it was an affluent part of Little Rock at that time. So.
3: And they were one of the main um, groups that were against the integration of Central High School, and indeed yes. caused quite a fury in Little Rock, if mm-hmm. I understand correctly. So
0: this would have a big impact on um, a young person at 15 and I'm saying all this from a 42 year distance I didn't Mm -hmm. know this at 10 or 15 when this happened you know what I'm telling you now I wasn't aware of this and also all of this segregation the law was separate but equal the separate part was upheld but the equal was not all black facilities were much inferior. The schools, the parks, everything that they had was inferior to the whites. And it's amazing how now we were blind to that, that we didn't mm-hmm. see that. Or you never questioned. Never questioned. It. And in a supposedly Christian nation
3: mm-hmm.
0: and a democratic nation, that this was not we, – we got up every morning and did the Pledge of Allegiance in class with liberty and justice for all, never thinking about what we were saying, that it was not just.
3: Mm
0: -hmm. And in church, Jesus loves the little children, red and yellow, black and white. They are precious in his sight, that what we, we sang and what we said was in conflict with what we did.
2: This is Doug Storm for Interchange. Our show tonight is from The Vault. A 1999 episode with host Shanna Ritter interviewing Elizabeth Eckford, one of the Little Rock Nine. Black students selected to begin integrating the schools. And Hazel Brian Mazury, the white student made infamous in photographs by Will Counts, which capture her jeering at Eckford.
3: Elizabeth. Can you talk about your experience growing up in Little Rock? Was it in Little Rock, Arkansas itself?
1: Yes, I uh, lived in Little Rock until I was 17. Um, In talking about and thinking about who I am, I go back to my family and my family's background. I am one of six Eckford Kids. We call ourselves the Half Dozen. The Half
3: Dozen experts. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I grew up in a household where my father was king, my mother was queen of no. Uh, they were benevolent, loving despots <laughs> who, worked, who worked very hard to support mm-hmm. uh, uh, six children. Both my parents worked two jobs. But uh, in thinking about my background, I go back to the oral tradition in my family, Growing up hearing the stories from my grandfather of what his life had been like in Mississippi and in eastern Arkansas and talking to my father about what his life had been like. He had grown up in Little Rock, but my mother had run away from home, and she's part of a generation of folk uh, that came to Little Rock in order to um, have the possibility of a high school education of education past the eighth grade, there are um, people who are now in their seventies uh, who left these small towns in Arkansas to come to Dunbar, which was uh, had the finest education available for a Negro in the entire state. But you have to—I uh, honor these people because they came here, aged fourteen, fifteen, and sixteen, and had to support themselves in order to get a high school education. Mm-hmm. So I, I think it turned back and honor the sacrifices of previous generations. And that is something that was part of the consciousness of my age group among Negroes, that um, that there had been tremendous sacrifices, and that the only time that there would be change is if somebody was willing to make a sacrifice.
3: What, um, what was it like for you attending um, segregated schools? Were, did you question it, um, other, than, other than knowing that in order to change things, sacrifices would have to be made, something that Hazel didn't grow up thinking because that white, wasn't bri- part that of your was consciousness. Privilege. Um, but for um, you, was I, it
1: something that was questioned in your family, talked about? Um, my, my parents have a high school education, but I was raised with the assumption that I would go to college, and uh, I knew all along that there was no way my parents could finance that. Mm-hmm. but they raised all of the children with the assumption that we were going to go to college because education to negroes then um opened the possibility for you to have uh more mobility mm-hmm. more uh more opportunity education meant opportunity so it's something that um uh, for even the people who did not have it they supported it there were um parents with grade school backgrounds who were strong supporters of the PTA and in our schools um, I was fortunate I had my parents teachers and uh, those teachers had the same high expectations for me that 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 my parents had I was never able to get away with anything because I'd get I'd get uh, uh, the consequences of that both at school and at home and I grew Mm -hmm. up in in a neighborhood where um Uh, people in the community uh, felt responsible for other people's children. I also grew up in a neighborhood um, that people today uh, find hard to understand. I grew up in segregation, but I grew up in a mixed neighborhood, and that was not uncommon in Little Rock at that time. Um, Did you play – did kids on the block play together, or did they – Yes, we played together, and and, and there would be separation around age 10 when the name calling would start. But um, um, I still live in that neighborhood, and it became – started becoming all black uh, in the early 60s. -hmm. But uh, strangely enough, we knew where our closest neighbors stood – And the most hateful people in the neighborhood somehow didn't run when blockbusting started. (laughs) They were there until they were carried out (laughs) for
3: They stayed on. (laughs) (laughs) Um, In your family growing up under the Jim Crow laws or or the segregation laws, um, was it something that in your house was talked about? Was it something, did you feel that it was? Accepted in the same way that Hazel's family accepted it as as just being the the way life was, or was it something that was talked about changing as well as well, the my, sacrifices that would have uh, to go into? My father
1: it. talked about what his life had been like. He remembered that um, as a kid, he had been taught that if he were walking down a sidewalk and a white woman was re- approaching, for his own safety, he should cross the street so that he couldn't be accused of of looking at her in an inappropriate way. And I remember that my mother had grown up in, um, she was from a sharecropping background, and she, uh, in her, I noticed that her manner was to be compliant and to not trouble the waters. And my mother was an extremely hypervigilant, overprotected parent, so I don't know what kind of self-talk she had to allow me to go to Central and to, <laughs> and to stay there. Will but I know, I know that it was something that, that um, was very, very... had to be very, very hard for my mother every day.
2: It's time for a break. This is Charles Mingus, Track C, group dancers off of The Black Saint and the Sinner Lady. It's subtitled Soul Fusion, free woman, and oh, this freedom's slave crisis. In the liner notes to the album, it's noted that the theme suggested by the title is the peace and happiness of the free person, contrasted with the pain and tears of black Americans. Welcome back to Interchange, I'm Doug Storm. Our show is Facing Down the Past and presents selections from a 1999 interview with the two high school girls immortalized by photographer Will Counts on September 4, 1957, during the standoff over school integration in Little Rock, Arkansas. In this segment, Elizabeth Eckford talks about her confusion as the National Guard barred her way with crossed rifles, having thought they were there for her protection That day, fear and hostility were palpable, and Elizabeth Eckford, the young woman, disappeared into the iconography of the struggle for civil rights in the United States.
3: The decision um, Brown versus Board of Education in 1954 was, of course, the Supreme Court landmark decision that was forcing integration of schools. However, Little Rock um, Board of Education didn't decide to go ahead until 1957. And on September 3rd, 1957, Elizabeth, you walked alone into September Central, 4th. 19th. September 4th. Thank you, because the third you couldn't get in. September 4th, 1957, you walked alone into Central High School. What were you thinking when you? Well, I
1: had heard the governor's speech the night before when he had told the populace that he had called out the Arkansas National Guard to preserve order at Central High School. So um, I rode the the city bus to school, got off and walked those two blocks, and I could hear the murmur of the crowd. And as I approached the school, I saw uh, the soldiers surrounding the school. But I thought that the soldiers were there to protect all of the students so when I approached the corner, um, they barred my way. And I thought, I was thinking to myself, well, maybe that you're supposed to enter a little further down. So I walked a little further down and attempted to enter Then The soldiers opened ranks to let white students through and then crossed rifles to bar my way. Well, I said, well, the main entrance is at the center. So I walked a little further down. And this time when I stopped,
3: This is a very painful memory. I really appreciate your taking the bravery to share it with us.
1: This time, this soldier directed me across the street where the crowd was. And as I stepped out into the street, um, people started searching forward, and I couldn't go back in the direction which I had come. But I, I remembered that there was another bus stop at the opposite corner, and so I headed in, in that direction. But before I did, I did as I would have. I still did not know that adults would deliberately harm a child. So I looked for help in the crowd. And I saw a woman whose face I thought was kind, and she spat on me. So I had no option but to keep going forward to the bus stop. And when I got there... Uh, the press pack was in front of me, and some of them surrounding me. And the crowd, in a way, they wished that there was a shield between me and the crowd. And um, at first, I tried to go to the to a drugstore across the street in order to call a cab to get home quickly. And the proprietor locked the door, so I had no choice but to sit there and wait. It was not because of the distance I had walked further than that before walking home from Dunbar mm-hmm. but i I waited for the bus because I was afraid that if I walked, some of the people would follow me, and that there would be there would be less restraint on what they would do to me because there would be fewer witnesses.
3: I Thank you, Elizabeth, for sharing that um hazel, you were in a situation of being part of the crowd, and I know this hurts you in a different way. Can you talk a little bit about what was going through your mind as you approached the day when um, your life was about to change because your school was about to change?
0: At 15, I was not very political. I was, I would say, mostly mimicking the adults that I knew. Uh, The governor had come on TV and said that he was sending um, the troops in the um national guard to um, maintain order and to prevent violence, so no one knew exactly what was you know going to happen and um I was in front of the school my uh, didn't know until last year that my mother uh was released from work to come to the school, and I asked her why, and she said, well, that the governor told them to come to the school. He gave the impression that if there was protest, that somehow that the integration would not happen. And uh, she did not know I was in the crowd. She thought that I was in class. And uh, this was something that they were not, although they were segregationist and promoted segregation that I don't think they ever wished any violence to happen, and they were not pleased that for what I had done. And um, for a 15-year-old, it certainly was not a normal school day to come to school and see National Guards around your school with military uh, garments on and rifles in their hands and to have all the press that was there. So part of this... It's hard now to to see and to talk about that um, Elizabeth was not viewed as a person but as a symbol of something that we didn't want to happen and and that was not right because of the damage that it has done to her life mm-hmm. that what we did that day to uh, demonstrate. That we didn't want, we didn't, we were as one book says, taken by surprise, and we weren't ready for a social revolution. We, when you're in the middle of something, you don't realize what's going on. We had no idea that this was the, uh, the historic uh, that we were making history.
1: Well, one that, thing I remember that, that um, we realized. Uh, from that time we we, we knew that we, we that we couldn't always wait till white people were ready for change.
3: <laughs> they waited three hundred years.
2: <laughs> this is Doug Storm for Interchange. Our show tonight is from the Vault, a nineteen ninety-nine episode with host Shanna Ritter interviewing Elizabeth Eckford, one of the Little Rock Nine. Black students selected to begin integrating the schools, and Hazel Bryan Masary, the white student made infamous in photographs by Will Counts, which capture her jeering at Eckford.
3: Professor Counts, you were there as a photographer. How did you come to be in Little Rock, and what were your impressions looking onto the scene?
4: I, I had just begun my first job in journalism as a photographer for the afternoon newspaper the arkansas democrat i had finished graduate school here at indiana university and i really came back to my hometown to work with a very good journalist robert mccord i was really the sunday magazine photographer but when this big story began he and the other editors gave me freedom to go to the school and spend what time that I needed to to cover this event, which was really – I was really uh, in a very good position for a photographer. I had no deadlines. I could just uh, cover the story as it developed. And um, so that morning, I was of very mixed feelings. I was just – so upset, uh, sick at my stomach, what the governor was doing in my hometown at my high school. And so that part of me was really depressed. There's a part of me as a journalist that was uh, excited about covering a major news story. So I really had mixed emotions uh, that morning when Elizabeth came to the school.
3: Did, did you know at that time how major this was? I mean, it's, it's said that the integration of Central High School was the second spark in the civil rights movement, you know, that that Rosa Parks action was the first and that Central High School was the next, and had that not happened, that, that movement which really grew after this um, and really took forward, were you aware of the fact that you were making, that
4: you were watching history in the making? Uh, I was aware that when the governor of a state... Puts himself between an uh, order from the Supreme Court of the United States that it was a major confrontation. So I was certainly aware of that. Uh, I must not, I will not say that I knew the ramifications of it and how many people have said the injustices that Elizabeth and the other students faced as they began the desegregation of Central High really helped accelerate the process th- across the south across the country uh, and so uh, Little Rock was one of the first major confrontations but maybe th- in that being the first it really saved some confrontations uh, uh, around the country.
1: Mm-hmm. Little Rock became an example of uh, what other cities should not do because uh, there were replications for the entire state. Mm-hmm. That image of, of Little Rock has persisted for a very, very long yes, time. It and it, um, it had uh, serious implications. No new industry moved into our mm-hmm. town for 10 years after that. And in the 1960 census revealed that the state had lost population. When um, South Pacific was playing on Broadway, And the song came up, uh, the woman said she's a little girl from Little Rock. The audience went, boo. Hmm. Um, Elizabeth, if you're willing to talk about this,
3: I want to ask, you were 14 at the time? I was 15, 15, almost
1: 16, and going into my junior year of high school.
3: How were you able to go back again? the it was not the next day I believe right but the day
1: after uh, that. we went back in the school on September 23rd after the governor had withdrawn the National Guardsmen and the uh, city police were out there in front of the school attempting to hold back the crowd, and uh, we went in a sight door so at first um, they were not aware that we were there and some black newsmen were out in front toward the opposite corner and when the crowd realized we were inside the school, they turned with fury upon the black uh, newsmen because they felt that they had been decoys, and they were. And inside the school, um, some of the students wouldn't sit near us. There were some jeering, some catcalls. But uh, some of the other students re- reacted in a strange way when they realized we were inside their school. Some of them panicked and jumped out of second floor windows. Some of them uh, left school, and that was the beginning of a, a boycott where eventually, uh, by boycotting and by some students uh, transferring to other schools, the s- school lost 200 students. Out of 600? 200. Out of 2,100. Out of 2,100.
3: And um, when you went back, to school that day, how did the teachers react to the students and and to your colleagues that were there with you?
1: Well, among us, there various kinds of reactions that we talked about among ourselves. There were some teachers who would seat us separately from the other students. But I remember that in all my classes, because I arrived after the other students had been enrolled, after the other students had been in class for three weeks, I wound up being on the End of the row in every class, but um, there were different reactions in in every class. You know, when you think back to your school years, you remember some teachers who didn't put up with anything. So some teachers, regardless of how they felt, would not let the students act up in class. Mm-hmm. And there were some teachers who I remember I had a history teacher who had a way of letting me know how much she hated me that she would not accept change from me skin to skin. She would make me put it on the desk before she would pick it up.
2: It's time for another break. This is the first of three movements off of the final track on Charles Mingus's The Black Saint and The Sinner Lady. This is Mode D, trio and group dancers. Stop, look, and sing songs of revolutions. Welcome back to Interchange. Our show today presents selections from a 1999 Interchange interview with the two women who, in an instant, were frozen into the symbolism of racial division in the U.S. by photojournalist Will Counts, who captured the iconic moment of desegregation in Little Rock, Arkansas on September 4, 1957. Counts joined the two women in the WFHB studios to discuss the circus-like atmosphere of the day. The segment begins with host Shanna Ritter asking Hazel bryan Misery, made infamous for her hateful jeering at Elizabeth Eckford, if she stayed in school that year.
3: Hazel, did you continue at school throughout that year, and what was it like?
0: No, I did not. My parents, um, there was a lot of confusion and a lot of behind the scenes with the courts going on for three weeks before they were finally admitted and because my picture had taken my parents were afraid of maybe some harm coming to me and they transferred me to a county school that
1: that, every time you say that I'm puzzled who do they expect to harm you?
0: Well, there's some things that you don't know that we're not going to get into right now. We don't have time, and I'll tell you about later. But they they were just, like your mother, hypervigilant, just wanted to protect me. And they removed me from the school. And um, I went to, I didn't go to the rest of the year. I didn't return to Central at all because the following year the, the school was closed, my senior year. This was my junior year also. I had gone my... Uh, uh, sophomore year mm-hmm. to Central.
3: Well, did you continue to cover the story when the students came back on September 23rd, and then continue to cover it um, through up till Christmas break? At one, at the point of which one student was expelled soon after that, I believe.
4: Uh, yes, mm-hmm. uh, the uh, the the press uh, after Elizabeth and the others uh, began the desegregation process was appropriately. Uh, uh, barred from the high school. And so we covered um, that year from a distance. We did not have access to the school, and we shouldn't have had access to the school uh, because it was enough of a uh, of a, a circus atmosphere in the school without the press being there to maybe agitate uh, and and uh, uh, Hazel has said uh, that she felt uh, that this was a, uh, a, a scene out when she was following Elizabeth, that it was sort of a, a holiday kind of act- uh, uh, atmosphere, and the, the kids were acting. Uh, mm-hmm. Just cutting had up an
0: audience. Audience. They had and, an audience, it pl- up, and lots of it.
3: national guards troops, both sent in by Eisenhower as well as by no, the government. Well, the and, and, troops you know, later they happens. were,
4: and uh, so I think it's appropriate that we didn't have a lot of access to the school. In one way, it's unfortunate that the injustices it, in, in a very real way, not just. In, It's unfortunate that the injustices that Elizabeth and the others were facing inside the school were not really reported very well. I think the press failed in getting that out to the public, but yet I think we could have had a disruptive effect if we were in the school. How do you feel about
1: that? Um, I remember um, there were two newspapers, the morning newspaper and Will's paper, the afternoon newspaper. The morning newspaper took the stance that, yes, we support segregation, but we, but we uh, uh, urge the, the, the uh, citizens to follow the law. Um, and, and they were critical of, of uh, Governor Forbes in the, in the editorials. As a result of that, that paper suffered a prolonged boycott from which it never recovered and the paper was awarded eventually two Pulitzer Prizes. Mm -hmm. But I do remember that there was almost no publicity about what was happening to us inside the school. The only time I remember anything being reported was something that that was visible on the outside of school. One February day when it was snowing and we came out out of school to uh, go home, um, we were met with rock-filled snowballs and there was a reporter out there who wrote about that, um, but that is about the only time I remember uh, there being anything uh, in the local paper. But I, I wonder really, if the if the population had known what was happening to us, I don't really think that many people would have been sympathetic, because uh, inside the school, um, there. Were about, out of the 1,900 students left, there were about 55 students who actively tormented us and were, at, were organized for that purpose mm-hmm. every day. But the majority of the students turned their backs and, and were indifferent. Uh, we remember out of that whole year among the nine of us, we remember about 12 students who stood up and were consistent throughout the, the year and had acts of bravery every day.
2: This is Doug Storm for Interchange. Our show tonight is From the Vault, a 1999 episode with host Shanna Ritter interviewing Elizabeth Eckford, one of the Little Rock Nine, black students selected to begin integrating the schools, and Hazel Brian Mazury, the white student made infamous in photographs by Will Counts, which capture her jeering at Eckford. (laughs)
3: Um, one of the students, Minnie Jean, I believe it was, was expelled and after Jean was she expelled because um, she retaliated. All she did was she yes. dumped a lunch tray on some boys who had been mm-hmm. taunting her.
1: There was a dual standard of behavior at Central. We were expected to not retaliate, to uh, not have any any semblance of normal school life, to not be able to participate in extracurricular activities, to just go to class and take it.
3: What was the reaction of the remaining eight students um, after one of you was expelled for doing nothing more than turning around and saying something, basically? We
1: were determined that that, that uh, we would not drop out. So that there were many mornings when it was tough to get up, mm-hmm. put your clothes on, and go back to that place. I think of it as a hellhole. I, I have a, a conflicting... Uh, feelings now about central i have a lot of pride mm-hmm. that, that that it's it's a, it's a very now a very prestigious high school um, and i I'm, I'm glad that that various segments of the community now support the school mm-hmm. But i have bad memories very understandable. And what was conversations like
3: at your home around the dinner table as this was going on, and with your other siblings, your parents? Did you did they ever think about saying no? Don't go back. It's just too difficult. Or
1: well, I didn't bring home.
3: I'm sorry. I'm asking. I mean, no. I'm asking hard I'll questions. I'll get through it. I will get through it.
1: After very very early on, I decided not to. Talk to my parents about what was happening to me every day. And I remember that um, one of the coping things that my father did, my father tended to minimize what was happening. Mm -hmm. And um, so that is how he, that was kind of self-talk that he had. And I really, really kind of understand how it is that my mother was able to endure this knowing my mother.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Where were you in your
3: brothers and sisters, middle or younger? I uh, next to the oldest. And um, did, your, what, did your other siblings then go to integrated schools after this, or what happened uh, to the rest my, of your family?
1: My um, next oldest, my, my closest sister, was going to the Negro High School, in, and, and she finished her senior year there. And um, the next closest sibling was... One, a brother who's five years younger, and in subsequent years, my parents allowed him to be the first to desegregate a tough boys' school. Mm-hmm. It was part of the Little Rock school system. It was a vocational school, and uh, my brother talked about uh, uh, classmates putting guns in his back, in his face, but uh, he was able to. He had a different personality. I was a shy, retiring, kind of submissive person, but my brother has an assertive personality. A fleet of foot and has a sense of humor, so
2: he handled it differently. It's time for our final break. This is Mode E. Saint and Sinner join in merriment on Battlefront. From Charles Mingus's The Black Saint and the Sinner Lady. Mingus's psychologist Edmund Pollack wrote that, quote, a new note has crept into his music. Where once there was great anger, now one can hear hope, though throughout he presents a brooding, moaning intensity about prejudice, hate, and persecution. Unquote. Welcome back to Interchange. That was Charles Mingus with Saint and Sinner join in merriment on Battlefront. Tonight's special episode is about the integration of Little Rock Central High School in 1957 and features a 1999 Interchange interview with Will Counts, who took the photo that displays the deep and enduring, perhaps the defining fact of this country, its original political, economic, and cultural racism. Elizabeth Eckford and Hazel Bryan Masary, frozen into symbolism by counts on September 4th, 1957, discuss with host Shanna Ritter how they came together, quote, as part of an effort to educate young people about the pain of racial strife and the promise of racial healing.
3: You both got in touch with each other. Fairly recently, 1997, I believe, and Will, you were instrumental in that. What led you to um, instigate contact between Hazel and Elizabeth, and and what happened?
4: Uh, I had been in Arkansas as a visiting professor in my alma mater in Conway, Arkansas, and I had been back to the school uh, uh, documenting what had happened to Central High in the forty years since it began, began the desegregation process. And uh, at the end of that time uh, that I was there, the fortieth commemoration of the beginning of the desegregation process was, was coming uh, to a, a big uh, – I shouldn't call it a celebration, let's call it a commemoration mm-hmm. – uh, and the President, President Clinton, was coming down to talk to uh, the students, really symbolically opening the doors to Hazel, uh, excuse me, to Elizabeth and the others of the Little Rock Nine into the school. And I had heard uh, from a couple of people that Hazel was interested in meeting Elizabeth. She had apologized by phone many years earlier, but we in the media did not really – Uh, pick up on that apology. Uh, And so I'd heard that she was interested in meeting uh, Elizabeth. So uh, when I saw Elizabeth at the dedication of the Central High Visitor Center, Museum and Visitor Center, which is directly across the street from Central High, I asked Elizabeth if she would be uh, interested in meeting Elizabeth. Hazel and she said i've always wanted to meet her, and so uh, I was then through one a person that had interviewed uh, hazel before uh, get her telephone number and call her and she was very eager i she had uh, uh, Hazel had really been wanting this to happen for years, and it just didn't happen so my wife and I uh, Vivian uh, picked up uh, Hazel and we took her over to uh, uh, Elizabeth's home, and but just an enduring image embedded in my mind forever was the quickness that Hazel and Elizabeth, and also my wife, really got into a very friendly conversation about uh, flowers, about dresses, and all. And so we went to the school, made the photograph. It was published. It's been published many times. Mm-hmm. And really, the whole thing was just just wonderful for me. And to, to be able to come back 40 years later to the scene where I took photographs of a symbolic uh, of hate – I was able to come back to the same place and take a photograph that was symbolic of reconciliation and love. It just was a wonderful experience.
3: Elizabeth, what was your reaction to being contacted after all those years?
1: Well, I remember that um, uh, when uh, Counts identified himself as having been a photographer of the evening paper. It's a it's a paper that that, that among black people there's a lot of feeling of hostility toward because it was a hostile press in 1957. And uh, so, so that I was reluctant to see him. In fact, I refused to see him. He contacted me early on, and I knew that I would have a lot of uh, contact with the press immediately prior to this 40th anniversary commemoration. And so I decided that I would see him Along with the rest of the press, but not beforehand. and so, um but when he gave me the opportunity to meet hazel, i was i was um I was delighted to do that. It was something I looked forward to. I felt awkward about. And I felt a little trepidation for her because I felt like she had no idea what she would be stepping into in terms of press attention. Mm-hmm.
3: How about for you, Hazel?
0: Well, it was a joy and a, a somewhat of a relief of, well, at last, after 40 years, that I had not... I'd been in that picture. I appeared with Elizabeth for 40 years in a picture, and no one ever came and interviewed me to say, you know, how does... She, has she changed or anything like that? So it was sort of a relief to Can me. You said
3: something about being caught in a moment and frozen there forever, didn't um,
0: you? Yes, I was... Um, In August, before the commemoration, there was a lady, uh, a journalist that called me from Washington, D.C., and interviewed me, which this was a first uh, to happen to me, actually. And she wanted to quote me, and I said, what do you want to know? She said, we keep talking. We talked almost an hour about uh, my family and what I had been doing over these 40 years. And I said, well, my life has been more than just that one moment. And Mm -hmm. she said, that's it. And I quote that? And I said, would you please? So Will <laughs> was very impressed with that quote and used it as the title of his book, that my, a life is more in one moment. And he'd been taught to capture the moment, capture the moment, and, uh, and, and life changes.
2: This is Doug Storm for Interchange. Our show tonight is From the Vault, a 1999 episode with host Shanna Ritter interviewing Elizabeth Eckford, one of the Little Rock Nine, black students selected to begin integrating the schools, and Hazel Bryan Mazury, the white student made infamous in photographs by Will Counts, which capture her jeering at Eckford.
3: Elizabeth, what was your life like after that first year? You did not return to Central High School the next year, is that true?
1: I've, um, I've lived in 10 states uh, not had a career, but done a lot of different things um, so that uh, there are people who have known me for years and have have no idea of my connection with Little Rock central high school and it 's because something it's something that i didn 't talk about for twenty years and um, I remember when I was in the army I was in a i worked in a, um, a military press office and we got routinely a lot of publications, and there was a, one issue of The New Yorker in which I was named in an interview story, and I asked them to, to uh, take that magazine out of circulation so that there wouldn't be questions from the rest of the people. Mm. But in the last couple of years, uh, I've learned to talk about the past. Um, we're
3: coming to the end of our time. I know that you have to run, Um, but I wanted to give each of you a a chance just to say anything else that you would like, what you most want people to know about this experience, and we'll just go around. Will?
4: Oh, I think, uh, what last night these two ladies in Wittenberger Auditorium had a very good discussion with a lot of the people across the spectrum in Bloomington and these people really responded to the message of hope that Elizabeth and Hazel are bringing to every group they talk to that I've been around and I just hope that conversation about the past and the present is able to not only extend between these two ladies and the people they meet, but across all of us. (laughs) Thank you.
0: Hazel? Well, it's through dialogue that we come to an understanding of the past, and um, we have to talk to one another and examine our beliefs. And the thing that's wonderful about beliefs is that we find out that they don't serve us, that we as human beings, we can change our beliefs.
1: Thank you. Elizabeth? You know, there's a Southern saying about pinging and calling it rain. <laughs>
3: <laughs> I mean, I've never
1: heard that before. <laughs> um, I, I'm thinking about a couple of things. Um, I'm a probation officer now, and I remember t- uh, talking to a probationer who kept talking around something, and I couldn't figure out what he was talking about. And he was in the office because... He knew that his probation could be revoked because he was uh, had been uh, about to be sentenced in a federal court for burning a cross on, 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 on the lawn of, of people that he was targeting. Hmm. And he was never able to say that, that, that this was done out of hatred. He kept saying that this was a childish prank. He was never able to realize the ramifications of the hurt that he had brought. And so there was a difference in his sentence, and in uh, and the other young men that were with him. The young man who had full disclosure, who acknowledged what he had done, was put on probation. The guy that was peeing and calling it rain got eighteen months in federal prison. <laughs> so that uh, I, I'm saying that when we look to the past, um, we have to be honest true reconciliation can only occur if you're honest and you have full acknowledgement but it is something that is very very difficult to arrive at that point
2: that's our show we'll close with the final movement off of Charles Mingus's The Black Saint and The Sinner Lady of love, pain, and passionate revolt, then farewell, my beloved, till it's freedom day. Throughout this album, there's a call for acceptance, respect, love, understanding, fellowship, freedom, a plea to change the evil in man and to end hatred, a plea to white America to be aware of its responsibility in this. This has been a special From the Vault episode, excerpting an October 1999 Interchange interview hosted by Shanna Ritter, with Elizabeth Eckford, Hazel Bryan Masary, and Will Counts. The women were immortalized 60 years ago by Counts in his iconic photograph, which has been dubbed The Screen, taken on September 4, 1957, and epitomizing the battle over school desegregation in the South. Elizabeth Eckford, symbol of hope and, in the moment, a visceral object of derision, and Hazel Bryan, symbol of the racist South, she too an object of derision, and as well, a kind of historical marker of shame. A quick note for the new year, for those of you who listen to us on the radio on Tuesdays, Interchange will return to the 6 p.m. time slot beginning January 2nd, 2018. Thanks for listening. I'm Doug Storm. I produce Interchange. Rob Schoon is assistant producer and Wes Martin is executive producer. Stay tuned for Counterspin, followed by The Jazz Menagerie, coming up next on your community radio station, WFHB.